You're going to take this family into the 21st century. We're already in the 21st century, don't they? You are listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos one episode at a time. I'm Vic Singh, and this episode will make a hat trick of my solo efforts. I know, Alberto Gilardino over here. Special thanks to everybody for indulging as I figure out this format. Your feedback has been overly kind, and I'm appreciative of that. It turns out, scheduling three people with three different lives and three different sets of obligations is tough. But I'm sticking to a schedule for all our sakes, and so thank you again for marching down the field with me as I sometimes call audibles. Street! Street! Dre, 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 Red Polly, Red Polly, Blue Poncho, Blue Poncho, Monday, 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 Monday. I imagine the remaining episodes will be a combination of the gang plus my solo efforts. And if I can orchestrate it so that it's every other week, I'll tap dance to and from my car every day. Maybe one of you can send me a boutonniere or something if that happens. Fuck you want a boutonniere? Okay, let's begin our rigorous inquiry into Everybody Hurts. Besides the obvious R.E.M. reference in the title, Everybody Hurts Sometimes I always think of Michael Jackson's Man in the Mirror when I watch this episode. As a big part of the story is Tony wrestling with questions, what kind of person am I? What kind of man am I? This theme is buttressed by the sequence of individual shots of Tony, Christopher, and Artie gazing at themselves in the mirror. And to a lesser extent, even AJ, who somehow realizes he's not living up to the pop culture standard of what it means to be heir to the head of a crime family. This episode was written by Michael Imperioli and directed by Steve Buscemi, who also directed Pine Barrens. HBO Synopsis. After hiring an attractive French hostess, Elodie, Artie agrees to loan her brother some money, with interest. Meanwhile, Christopher gets some new responsibilities. Carmela fixes Furio up with an oral hygienist. Anthony Jr. becomes the doughboy of a new rich girlfriend. And Tony receives some unsettling news about an old acquaintance. Wow, reading that out loud? Calling Gloria an acquaintance is a little rough. The title, of course, screams R.E.M. It's too close to not be officially connected to the song of the same name. But nobody knows anything, right? But the musical reference in the title brings me to sound. Sound design hasn't been explored much on the pod so far. So I want to make a conscientious choice to pay closer attention to it going forward. I almost feel as if something might have been missed there. Probably just paranoia, but in addition to reviewing the show with a magnifying glass, I will be experiencing it going forward with a pair of Bayer Dynamic over-ear monitors powered by an external amplifier. I'm bringing him in closer, Merlin. You're gonna do what? Also, another thing about the title, it's characteristically poignant given the subject matter of this episode. Suicide. Autopsy does a wonderful job reminding us of all the places suicide has popped up in the show to date, so be sure to check that out. This episode, at a minimum, 
is a culmination of all those ideations, references, and mentions. Another shout-out to Autopsy for highlighting the subtle double entendre in the title. Everybody feels hurt, but everybody also causes it. This observation is credited to Maurice Yakawar, who wrote a book examining The Sopranos. This lone observation, so simple yet elegant, prompted me to order a copy on the spot. I love the way single notes or phrases in a piece of music or writing or art can elicit that impulse. We open on Adriana and Chris, crashed out on the couch, watching what sounds like a documentary about pyramids. Cazette gets her first non-sequitur appearance. She's eating pizza, and nobody's doing anything about it. Chris, in a Bill Belichickian fila cutoff, is holding a syringe, bobbing in and out of consciousness, kind of like the way I do when attempting to watch other shows with the same level of interest as this one. The phone rings. It's Tony, a proverbial cold shower for Christopher in this instance. So, Chris swaps his syringe for his phone. We learn he's got 20 minutes to get to a place called the Webendorfer Factory parking lot. The real-life location was a place called Mori Machine Factory in Harrison. But in the 1900s, there was such a thing as the Webendorfer Wills Company, and it was headed by a man named John Webendorfer. Stay with me on this. Webendorfer Wills was a printing manufacturing business in Mount Vernon, where the following people, you better sit down for this one. Please shut the door and have a seat. Have origin stories or ties. David Chase, Michael Imperioli, whose father and grandfather, respectively, worked at Webendorfer, Dick Clark, shout out American Bandstand, Puff Daddy, I can hear him singing, I'm coming out. On the corner of 1st and 4th Avenue in Mount Vernon right now. DMX. X gon' give it to ya. Fuck way for you to get it on your own. X gon' deliver to ya. Knock, knock, open up the door. Seth Godin, whose book The Dip I recently read and highly recommend if you're thinking about starting something or are in the middle of your journey having started something but are stuck. Heavy D, whose lyric, Yesterday I broke my favorite chair, the crack was always sitting there. If it didn't already conjure up images of Vito or Adriana, consider that flaw in your consciousness now remedied. Boxer Floyd Patterson, who couldn't beat Ollie or Liston, but beat virtually everybody else. Sidney Poitier, who, to Junior Chagrin, made some westerns. Felicia Rashad. Yo, Adrian, that's Adonis Creed's mom we're talking about. Nina Simone, who happened to be neighbors with Malcolm X when she lived in Mount Vernon. E.B. White, whose elements of style changed my life and anyone who's ever tried to write something lean and good. Denzel Washington, whose pronunciation of Hoyt, the last name of Ethan Hawke's character in Training Day, was unprecedented in one of his acting greatness, Deep Cuts. And finally, because you know this list just wouldn't be complete without an NBA player, Detroit Pistons' Andre Drummond, who really just exists to make you appreciate what a great player Ben Wallace was. Now, in 1938, 
John Webendorfer sold his company to American Type Founders, Inc. for $1 million, or around $17.5 million in today's dollars. When the sale closed, Webendorfer distributed $250,000, or $4.4 million in today's dollars, across his 115 employees, based on seniority. Kind of makes you wonder if Chase's dad or Imperioli's grandfather saw any of that money. Now, if you've stuck with me this far, here's the payoff. The purchasing company, American Type Founders, was a New Jersey company. Its headquarters were in Elizabeth. Though it's now defunct, ATF was responsible for many of the fonts we see, know, and love all over print, digital, and screens today. News Gothic, Century Schoolbook, Franklin Gothic are but a few. The company shut down in 1993. Its Elizabeth factory went through its own Esplanade renovation and is now mixed-use apartments. And the font library they created are controlled principally by software and technology company Adobe. Fucking internet. Okay, back to Chris. He slaps his face to prep himself to meet up with Tony. Now, does slapping your face mitigate your high? Turns out that slapping yourself in the face has some healthy benefits. Mostly aesthetic, though. Conventional wisdom on the benefits include plumper-looking skin, smaller pores, hiding wrinkles, and better blood circulation. Okay, enough with the reading the back of a Kiehl's bottle. Cut to AJ's friend Patrick Whalen, played by actor Paul Dano, who at this point needs no introduction. Talk about an arc. We go from drug-using veterans, Christopher and Adriana, to teenagers experimenting with cigarettes and alcohol. An interesting contrast. They're talking about reinstituting the draft, which naturally got me thinking about draft law policy and how it's evolved over the years. The draft is formally known as conscription, and it's been employed by the government five times, dating all the way back to the Revolutionary War. Now, in 1968, Richard Nixon made ending the draft one of his campaign platforms, mostly because of pressure from affluent families who feared their children would be drafted, but still. In part because of this campaign platform, we're currently in a volunteer-based system. But conscription is an available tool if scenarios arise that mandate it. So AJ lets us know he's not going to the Army. A gentle reminder of the Army of One episode. His brief dance with military school. And the wondrous Major Zwingli. The core, the core, the core. AJ's other friend Jason makes a Godfather reference. Of course, the horse's head found in film producer Jack Waltz's bed. Next, the friends start cataloging Tony's legitimate businesses, and everyone gets excitable over the bing, which they decide to check out. Back to Christopher at the Webendorfer lot. Chris slaps himself again, twice, before stepping out to greet Tony. Furio's driving Tony, and the camera trains on him. He notices something about Christopher. The slaps? The cigarette? Maybe he wants a taste of the H. Whatever it was, it was both sinister and curious. Next, notice how Tony looks around when he steps out of the car. His neck is like a camera on a slider, panning the environment before locking on the final subject. Christopher, in this case. Note the landscape. The sound of a train bellowing in the background. The night air. You can hear it. The distressed brick. Broken vaulted windows. Shadows at every turn, urban grit and decay all around, 
but always strangely stunning and comforting. Tony tells Chris to give a truckload of washing machines to a guy named Frank Contino. But not the vacuum cleaners. Patsy's got a buyer for those. Movie theaters, maybe? No. Too cinematic. Tony notices Chris is a bit of a bobblehead. Chris says it's the wine. Then he pats down Chris. At least it looks or feels like a pat down. But he grabs a pack of cigarettes from Chris's jacket pocket before they level with each other. I can't help but think Tony didn't really want to smoke the cigarette, but used that as a way to ease the landing of an impromptu pat-down before discussing the significant family business that followed. I'm further convinced of this by the way he quickly and aggressively discards the cigarette after taking a few reluctant drags. So this family business he wanted to discuss was, of course, that Tony wants to start running most of his affairs through Christopher. I gotta make it my number one priority to limit my exposure to potentially damaging conversations and wiretap shit like that. Sure, guy in your position. Naturally, a pat-down would make sense. There's no chance he's going to offer up important and strategic trade secrets like this for public consumption. Remember Agent Skip and his talk of parabolics and methods appurtenant to them. When Chris hears that he's being entrusted to get more involved, I loved how his eyes started to water. Could have been the drugs, with his fidgetiness and all, but you get the sense he's really feeling raw emotion here. What about Syl and Polly? he asks. Those other guys, Syl, Polly. One thing they're not. They're not my blood. Powerful. Old you school. You what I'm saying to you? Pretty you much as old as time itself, right? And then, Tony channels Billy Joel. Get ready, guys. This is the first of many Billy Joel references this episode. Tony says it's a matter of trust. One, two, one, two, three, four. That Billy Joel number, of course, came out in 1986 and was off the Bridge album. You're going to take this family into the 21st century. We're already in the 21st century, don't we? I just love how the writing took a serious moment and turned it into comedy. Chris proclaims his renewed love and devotion to Tony. This is almost like a born-again baptism or a renewal of vows. All because of what T did for him. I'm saying that in air quotes, by the way, because I really feel it was a setup. Go back and listen to 4.01 to get the full consideration of this issue. Also, Tony's face, his reaction to Christopher professing his devotion here is less than convincing. In fact, it's almost a tell that validates the wonderful theory that only became apparent to me after all these years. To paraphrase Stephen Colbert in his recent interview with Anderson Cooper, I didn't learn this. I realized it. And now that I've realized it, I see a lot of things differently. True or not, actual or not, the dynamic of it, the possibility of it, is enough. Tony follows up Christopher's weighty and loving acknowledgement by applying pressure. When Christopher says, I hope I'm worthy, Tony's retort, why wouldn't you be, accomplishes two things. First, it hardens him and allows any tell he might give Chris that the Barry Haydu thing was bullshit go right out the back door. 
Second, it secures even more loyalty and devotion because Christopher, if he's smart, won't fuck this up. In other words, Tony uses this lie again to achieve a similar goal or at a very minimum reinforce the original goal. Eight ball, corner pocket. Final thought on this scene. Note that both are wearing leather jackets, but Tony fills his out, whereas Christopher's is oversized. Tony's wearing his jacket. Christopher's jacket, on the other hand, is wearing him. The changing of the guard may be figurative, but it's definitely not literal. Not yet, at least. The dichotomy of man and boy is on full display here. Now, cut from Tony and Chris hugging it out to AJ in the back seat of his friend's car. Why is AJ in the back seat? He should be the man, at least amongst friends. Insult to injury, he's in the middle seat. Yes, I suppose that it's mitigated by the fact that he's in between two beautiful girls, but still. They pull up outside Satriel's. This is where my dad's office is. Oh, okay. It's a front. Like Janko olive oil. Yeah, it's like Janko. It looks really clandestine. Teenagers applying metaphors on metaphors on metaphors. Oh, wait. That's not limited to teenagers. Here I am in my advanced 30s doing the same thing. Age really is just a number. And receding hairlines. But I digress. AJ's amassing a cadre of friends and future yes-men based on the mythology of his heritage. And, if nothing else, these sequences are great launching points for future storylines. Okay, Tony's in the kitchen, down comes Carmella, and, cue the music, she bumps into Furio. A modern-day analog to this has to be the Instagram boomerang emoji thingy, right? Upon close watch, Furio kind of bursts in, a little fast given the general tenor of the room, the mood, the time of night, and he surely must have heard her coming down the stairs. What I'm trying to say is his move was intentional, and if so, a lot of balls, given that Tony was right there. What's more, he turns 180 degrees from the direction he was going so vigorously to use the men's room. But his pace in the other direction is much closer to an after-curfew kind of pace. Also, note the oranges on the table as he walks away from her and Carmela gazes longingly at him. After, of course, looking away from Tony and blushing like a tomato. If the Godfather orange reference is intentional here, are Furio's days numbered? Are Carmela's? Later in the bedroom, she tells Tony she worries about Furio. This coinciding with the removal of her robe, almost as a way to let her guard down before confiding in Tony, or feeling him out if you're team long game, Carmela. A note on the seashell-looking chair she lays her robe on. It deserves an Emmy for best lit inanimate object. Alex Sakharov has no mercy whatsoever. Carmelo wonders if Furio is lonely. She name-drops Jessica, the dental hygienist, a girl Carmela's trying to set up with Furio. Why is she doing this? What's the play? Someone tell me. Tony says, Don't worry about him. Stay out of it. One date won't hurt. What do you want to bother? 
My little hello, Dolly. Of course, he's referencing a movie of the same name, starring Barbara Streisand as Dolly, a matchmaker. Note Carmela's hair, Streisand undertones. And speaking of paying closer attention to sound on the show, Hello, Dolly won Oscars for Best Score and Best Sound. Okay, so Carmela mentions her Mercedes. Globe Motors. That nice sales lady. Tony looks away. Moments after Carm just did the same thing with Furio. She died. She what? Note Tony's pause in responding. It's not too long. It's not too short. It's just right. Then note how the camera cuts to Tony just as Carmela finishes saying the word suicide as a way to give you Tony's real-time reaction to processing the implication of that word, of that act, to someone he gravitated towards strongly, however push and pull it was. Your empathy over there. Tony's mini panic attack upon hearing Carmela's virtual narration of how Gloria killed herself was, of course, signature. Cut to... Good evening, Vesuvio. The camera introduces us to Artie's new hostess, Elodie. Then we see Artie talking it up with Jean-Philippe. We overhear Artie talking about how 50,000 is a lot of scarole. But note the bottles of Moet and Chandon lined up behind him as he laments the amount of funds. That brand right now is top of mind for me because of the great new Andrew Bird song called Bloodless. Bloodless for now. The gentry drinking Moet and And the title of that song is all too fitting here as well, especially as it pertains to Jean-Philippe and Elodie. Elodie and Jean-Philippe are siblings. She connected the two of them together on account that already has connection to money. Little pitchers have big ears. That's a great turn of phrase and one that I use regularly with the five-year-old. Artie's name is kind of out on the street, we learn. He gets the benefit of Tony's unwavering protection and support and also has this rep on the street, as a power broker, at least by North Jersey standards, and to recent French immigrants, if we're really narrowing it down. So, essentially, Jean-Philippe needs a bridge loan for something called Domaine Vesali, an Armagnac property. Armagnac, of course, is a distinctive kind of brandy, like cognac. It's produced in the Armagnac region, in a place called Gascony, in southwest France. It's distilled from wine, usually made from a blend of grapes. It's the next vodka. In actuality, according to sommeliers, it's cheaper and better when compared against its brandy cousin to the north, cognac. The key difference between the two is that cognac is distilled twice, whereas Armagnac is distilled once. Jean-Philippe mentions a $10 million worldwide launch. And he's personally got 100 k in it. And he needs that additional 50 to secure North American distribution rights. He goes on to say that the timeline is 10 days because when the deal is done, the advertising money is going to be released to him. Red flag. Where's Ginsburg? In another great moment of levity in between meaty and complex dialogue, Jean-Philippe asks if Charmaine is French. Charmaine? She's French? Not remotely. Such a great little chaser. That leads us to a great moment between Artie and Charmaine in the kitchen. She wants Artie to collect on Tony's $6,000 tab. Artie, you want to bring in some meaningful money. Why don't you get your friend Anthony Soprano to pay his tab? 
It's close to $6,000, Arthur. I could have an empire, like Bobby Flay, and it still wouldn't be good enough for you. Okay, I'll make you a deal, Artie. We'll start working on your empire right after we pay the $10,000 of what the denture is going to need this year. The regularness of life. Cut to Tony at Globe Motors. A sales guy there informs him that Gloria wasn't very lucky with men. Now, we kind of already knew this, of course, but Tony hearing it serves to put the weight of her death firmly on his shoulders. Hang on to this notion of Tony's shoulders for later. We learn she left a note, but it turned out to be nothing. Just ad copy to sell her wolf stove. But the stove could be relevant again. So hold on to that for a moment, too. Artie goes to see Ralphie. Not for nothing, but note the other Emmy-winning lit mid-century modern orange vinyl chair. Alex Zakharov is river dancing through this episode. Chef Osobuco, Ralphie says. Osobuco, of course, is an Italian dish consisting of veal shanks braised with vegetables, white wine, and broth. I'd like to think this reference was made not only because of the interconnectedness to Artie's name, Artie Buco, but also because Michael Imperioli is a skilled chef and has close ties to the restaurant business. Next, we get some more Ralph humor. Such great lines every time. And when he gets them, they always seem to come in rapid succession. Also, note the devil's logo immediately to his right, next to his head, when the camera is framed on him in the seated position. So Artie asks for the money, but Ralphie says that because of his bar, he's sitting on money like King Croesus. King Croesus, of course, reigned over an empire in what is now mostly known as Turkey for 14 years, around 560 BC. He was defeated by Cyrus the Great, a renowned Persian king, but Croesus is largely credited with creating hard currency. A great reference, no doubt. But this got me asking, how much do restaurant bars typically bring in? What percent of total revenue is derived from the bar? And according to Bloomberg Businessweek, alcohol sales in restaurants average around 30% of total revenue. Not exactly King Croesus levels, but certainly not insignificant either. If any listeners out there own or run a restaurant with a bar, send me a message and let me know how your bar does and what the rough math looks like. Quick fashion aside, Artie's olive corduroy oversized jacket is a sight to behold. Brunello Cusinelli over here. Ultimately, Ralph declines, politely, because if Artie doesn't pay back, Ralph can't hurt him. The specter of Tony looming large again. Artie is this truly unique creature on the show. He gives credence to the expression, the man, the myth, the legend. Now over to Dr. Melfi's office. Business okay? Everybody hunky-dory? Well, you know, onward and upward. How's Gloria Trullo? She's still uh, hanging around. Too soon, Tony. This got me thinking about protocol for clinicians whose patients kill themselves on their watch. 
One of the things I read that was interesting was that clinicians are encouraged to attend the funeral. It's generally welcomed by loved ones of the deceased and aids the grieving process. Importantly, attending is not an admission of responsibility for the suicide. On the business end of things, the protocol is to seek legal counsel, notify your malpractice insurance carrier, and complete the patient's medical record. Melfi says with something like this, there's no one cause, which is something that Tony will be reminded of by another woman in his life, Janice, later when they're at dinner together. A lot of little instances of repetition in this episode. Fitting in that it's also an episode filled with characters playing things out in their minds over and over again. Tony's upset, naturally, but he winds up and winds down pretty quick. Amazing bipolarity range on display. Curiously, he picks up the tissue box and puts it back on the coffee table, but sideways. He even looks at it sideways, as if he's about to put it right side up, but doesn't. So in this session with Melfi, Tony blames himself. And Melfi calls him on it, almost angrily. She kind of snarls at him a little here. Why are you so quick to blame yourself? It's a great question. Why does he feel guilty about it? Also, does she feel a little guilty about it? The way she asked him, it felt a little like she was asking for herself, too. I can relate to these feelings on a personal level. My stepbrother killed himself one summer, years ago. He was a teenager and I was a couple years older. Earlier that year, he had reached out to me. He wanted to hang out. And I was kind of a jerk and difficult about it. I was going to the movies with a friend or something really insignificant. I totally could have hung out, but didn't. Several months later, when I learned he killed himself, that's the first thing I thought about. And still think about. In fact, self-blame as a concept, not just because of what happened to my stepbrother, is one of the subjects I'm working through in therapy. Okay. Tony shows up at Artie's. Artie, you, uh, you need a favor. What I do to you, you don't reach out to me. What are you talking about? Officer Ferretto called me and told me you came to him for money? You need something, you don't come to me? Great Godfather reference. Of course, the opening sequence with Don Corleone and Bonacera. Artie greets him with a, ho, Capitan! Artie's not in the crew but he knows which way the wind blows. Note that Artie's place is in shambles. Boxes. What the fuck? Did Charmaine kick him out? I know they've been on the fritz for a while, but this is the first glimpse we get at where Artie spends his time when he's not at Vesuvio's. And this, of course, is also a wonderful opportunity to keep the Billy Joel theme going strong. Who needs a house out in Hackensack? Tony pauses, unusually long, in my mind at least, before asking Artie about the money, almost like he was winding up to it. I thought that was curious, it being Artie and all, and that he usually cuts to the chase. Think back to episode one of season four. There's the fucking money! Also note the stove in the distance. A Bobby Flay Empire-level chef with that stove? Doesn't fit. He should have answered Gloria's ad and picked up that wolf stove aftermarket. Artie says he doesn't want to impinge on their friendship. Maybe, 
but he's come awfully close. He's at least flirted with it, right? Tony offers it up anyway, but Artie pushes back again. I mean, what the fuck am I? A toxic person or something? Here's 3,000. Somebody's going to come by and give you the rest. Somebody. Love that. Very boss. It feels a little like some of the motivation behind this was guilt over Gloria. This just after telling Melfi, she came to me for help and I wasn't there. But Tony's here now. And I wonder, does correcting one wrong make everything all right? Maybe so. Even if only incrementally better. Let's see. There's a moment after Tony and Artie embrace when Artie turns to his side, clutching the stack of bills, summing up to 3,000, and gasps. Almost as if he realizes the road he's just started walking down. It makes you think for a moment about what kind of place you'd have to be in to make an ask of that nature to someone in a similar life station as Tony Soprano. Tony grabs a bottle of Armagnac on his way out. After all, he's an investor now, however obtusely. The ease with which he barehand rips the cork off the bottle is similar to the way James Harden splits two defenders and Eurosteps his way to the rack. Just another Thursday night. Also, love the choice to come in on a wide angle of Tony and get right up close as he drowns the bottle. It's visceral. You can smell the misty air of the Armagnac region emanating from the bottle. So, drowning his sorrows naturally turns into a dream. We see Gloria again, with a scarf around her neck. The music. The Aquatones you the ethereal spacing it creates, tunneling through our brain. She's drinking scotch on the rocks. Olivia nod, perhaps. Tony's three quarters of the way through the bottle of Armagnac. Another note on sound design. The silence. The space between them. The ambient air. You can hear the noise floor. Almost what sounds like a cheap wall unit air conditioner off in the distance. It enhances the dreamlike quality of it all. A bell rings. Time's up. Classic blue balls moment. There'll be another one of those coming up shortly. And note the ringing bell and how it also recurs again in a moment with Carmela. The ringing timer bell is a very ironic application of an everyday regularness of life object because it can seemingly be thread through the entire series all the way to the end. And if you can wrap your mind around that, the sound will always trigger a cascade of memories. In my mind, it plays out like a series of fast cuts, like Guy Ritchie used in the film Snatch to portray transcontinental travel. Okay, Gloria's scarf becomes serpentine, gliding along Tony. This triggered two things for me. The obvious, that she's reptilian, which we've ruminated on at length already, but also that she was giving him a rope to help her, to grab her. But he just let it slip away and watches as it falls to the ground. Remember that movie, The Good Son, with Macaulay Culkin? The last scene where the mother is choosing who to save. She can only save one. She needs both hands to be able to save just one. She makes a choice. This reminded me of that. Tony chose to put both hands on his life with Carmela and protecting that thing of theirs over any woman or alternate universe. 
These dalliances were always transactions in escapism, a form of necessary self-care. Nothing more, nothing less. And the scarf said to me, you can come at me, you can infiltrate me, you can use me, and I can use you. You can taunt me to grip you. But the most you can do is all those things and nothing else. You can't have me, and I can't save you. It's very Buddhist. The Buddha said, work out your own salvation. Do not depend on others. By the way, the stove in her dream wasn't a wolf either. So she must have sold it. Just not to Artie. Okay, in true dreamlike fashion, snowflakes are falling on the table. No, wait, those aren't snowflakes. Those are chunks of ceiling after being loosened by the chandelier Gloria hung herself from. And the way pieces of it fell perfectly into the tiny opening of Tony's bottle of Armagnac was reminiscent of what it looks like when the Splash Brothers are firing on all cylinders. You can do anything in a dream. And it's never too much or too little. It's a dream. It's a great opportunity, a great canvas to take a character places they normally can't go and to extra-dimensionalize them in the minds of viewers. And Soprano's dream sequences, at a minimum, accomplish that with scope and confidence. Which you want to say? This? Or this? For some reason, a look at death is more interesting or curious than sex. Death is unknown, whereas sex is momentary. This was a great Matrixy-like moment, and Tony was going to choose the red pill. But note the hard cut before we ever get to see anything. Sometimes dreams end like that. Sometimes things end like that. Friendships, careers, sometimes even shows end like that. Tony wakes up, grabs a Prozac, in a way that suggests he's been self-medicating and not sticking to an instructed schedule. Then he runs down to sign the Soprano family living trust. Carmela says, And if I was, like, obnoxious about this, I'm sorry. Ding! There's that other bell. We also learn of an upcoming Billy Joel concert. Billy Joel. Cue Elizabeth Barrett Browning's poem, How Do I Love Thee? Let Me Count the Ways. Interestingly, Browning was an English poet who lived and died in Italy. But back to Billy Joel for a second. Just hearing his name alone invokes a New York state of mind. Reverby piano, random lyrics playing through my hollowed-out head, no matter when or where, gotta make time and space for Billy Joel. In fact, I thought about him so much in preparation for this episode, listened to so much of his music, that I thought how great it would be if there was a show that answers questions about life or retorts to any and all inquiries in Billy Joel lyrics or references. I strongly believe there's enough material in those lyrics to get through most of life's pressing and important questions. Anyways, I digress. Okay, we learn that Carm set up Furio on a blind date. I mentioned this earlier, and I'd love to get some perspectives on the reasons why here. My own thoughts would be hopelessly misshapen, but I feel like there's a play here. I just can't see what. 
Is she testing herself? Is she testing him? Next comes the moment where I think we officially see what's happening with respect to Tony. That is, if it wasn't obvious already. Tony hooks Brian up with suits via Patsy. All past watchings and rewatchings, it's been benign. But now, I see it's because he's doing a series of positive deeds to compensate, to chip away at the guilt he feels over Gloria. First the money to Artie, then the trust, now the suits. Overcompensating for guilt as a human condition. Let's tackle that at some point down the road. When Brian took the info and thanked Tony, called him a great guy actually, how menacing was Tony's return smile? Hannibal Lecter had nothing on that one. Good evening, Clarice. Finally, when Brian walks away, we're left with the apparatus Tony has propped up to carry him through the day. All the many hoops and jumps and obstacle courses depressed people go through to function fall apart. He lets you see how he's able to support the weight of his world on his shoulders in a public-facing situation. But as soon as he captures a moment alone, he lets all the artifice, all the armor, fall down. Back to Artie. We're trained on his three o'clock. Three o'clock. On his nine o'clock, we've got Elodie out of focus. Then we get a Western-like orbiting over the dome. 90 degrees to reveal Charmaine at Artie's 12 o'clock. Remember back to season one for a second and the technique of orbiting around Tony's head in college and then again in The Legend of Tennessee Moltisanti. Something rings, but then stops. Feels like it was a doorbell on the back door to the kitchen. Another bell. And at this point, Let's get some Rocky in the mix here. Jean-Philippe's look is such a tell that this whole thing is bullshit and will blow up in Artie's face. That fucking wink. Also, love how Artie hesitates for a split second as if to change his mind. Same feeling I had when I handed my kid over to the school he will spend the next five years at. That same damn discomfort over the relinquishment of control. Speaking of sons, we're back on AJ. Or rather, AJ's on Devin Pillsbury. And we're accompanied by D'Angelo's instant classic, How Does It Feel? Now, raise your hand right now if you remember where you were when you first saw the music video for the song. The song, of course, came out in 2000. And it was written and produced by Raphael Sadiq, who, by the way, just dropped a new album that I've been listening to called Jimmy Lee. Amazing stuff. He never disappoints. Next, Carmela gives us an elementary education on Yadros. So I thought it'd be nice to get a graduate-level education. Or at least take a survey course. Or whatever the fuck. Now, my mother also collected Yadros. I'm haunted by them. So part of why I'm doing this is to purge the fear I had growing up of knocking one over. I've also lived through them being used as projectiles in arguments between my mom and dad. Hang on to that visual, and let's revisit it again in the episode Chasing It. Yadro, of course, is a Spanish company, 
Did not know that. I always thought they were French. That specializes in ceramic figurines. Of literally everything imaginable. It was founded in 1953 by three brothers who have kept it privately held ever since. Probably because of my mom. And probably because of the Carmela Sopranos of the world out there. They're also super secretive about their processes and techniques. Which only emboldens my childhood claim about the racket. The fucking painting. I knew that was a fucking scam. I knew that painting was a fucking scam. Okay, so poor Anthony gets cock-blocked and then has to cover it up in front of his mom while marching across the room. A perp walk of sorts any teen boy can relate to. They decide to go into the city to continue their rendezvous at Meadow's place. She's currently working at 161st and Brook Avenue in the South Bronx. Now, that is currently home to Faith Life Ministries International. A lot of new development there, too. More attention to sound. In the background, someone's getting chewed out in Spanish. The attention to detail. I always wondered about the shot choice of the door closing and then pointing the camera at the window so we see the reflections of AJ and Devin. Could be AJ questioning himself, his decisions, his lot in life. It certainly fits nicely in the context of this episode's inquiry into those questions and also showing other characters checking themselves in the mirror. AJ walks into the law center where Meadow works and Mad Dog's a guy who walks out as he's walking in. What's going on there? Self-talk? When in Rome? Meadow introduces herself to Devin because AJ's out of sorts. He feels like a combination of lingering effects of blue balls and being suddenly thrust outside his safe suburban bubble. Meadow is appalled that AJ's sole reason for coming into the city was sex. What about the culture? Book readings and the alphabets. Of course, she's referring to the section of the city in the East Village organized around avenues A through D. I love that upon being called out on it, AJ's notion of city culture was the tree at Rockefeller Center. A tradition, by the way, that goes back to 1931. Now, cut to the collateral-looking scene with AJ and Devin, and by that I mean the vantage point, from Tom Cruise's character to Jamie Foxx's in the driver position, the knight. Very Michael Mann feels all around. Then we get Devin's sociology report. It's very age-appropriate, yes, demographic-appropriate, but that doesn't make it any less cringeworthy. And the little box line by AJ. The son of a mob boss versus the son of a math teacher in their respective trappings. It's a fascinating, ironic, and uncomfortable contrast. It also takes you back to Melfi's dinner table with her husband and some house guests. They're talking about how some people they know, business and professional types, are as close to stone-cold gangsters as it gets. And this notion that while some earnings are the result of traditionally legal or ethical work, the trappings of wealth create a feed-the-beast mindset where some of the subsequent resources can be the result of ill-gotten gains. And this win-at-all-costs, rack-up-the-score-as-high-as-you-can mentality. AJ looks lost somewhere in the middle of all that. Okay, so Elodie is getting a belly for meeting all of Artie's gnocchi. She's intentional. She's doing a job Jean-Philippe has tasked her with, which is to keep Artie distracted. They're like a brother and sister Bonnie and Clyde over here. But Artie's worried. He knows he has to face Tony with this. She gives him a CD, Boulevard des Slows, an esoteric album proven by the difficulty I had tracking down info about it on the internets. 
I desperately wanted there to be some connective tissue there, but let's just leave it on the table for now. Elodie sees Charmaine and books. She knows Charmaine sees right through her. That proved it. Problems with the investment, Arthur? Oh, what do you mean? Please. What do you think? She suddenly wants to play hide the boudin blank with you. Another culinary reference by Michael Imperioli. This time, referencing a French dish consisting of sausage. Kind of a loaded reference. Cut to Carm working out. She's with Aid, also working out. Carm's the face of focus while working out. We could all learn something from her. In the moment. She noticed Chris's skin's not looking too good. Evidently, not enough slaps to the face. Aid says Billy Joel is a no-go. In fact, she paraphrases Billy Joel himself from two different songs. She says maybe you shouldn't count on us. In Downeaster Alexa, there's a line. And in Only the Good Die Young... Just laying track here, guys, throwing dimes, placing objects on tables. Go ahead, sing those two aloud. I'll wait. Back to Carm. Oh, what a shame. That's awful. What am I going to do with those tickets? She's a soldier. She's down for a moment and then lays her eyes right back into her workout. She does this with Tony. She did it with Charmaine in season one when she crushed her about their past. She does it with her kids. People hurt her, but she brushes it off to work in another set to stay on pace for her circuit. That's Carmella. No shot to the bow is too much. Now, cut from Carm working out to Janice stuffing her face. So classic. She's having dinner with Tony, of course. Hold up, though. This is rare. This is not something we've seen often, if at all. The two of them dining out in public like normal brothers and sisters are wont to do from time to time. But here, it makes sense. It's more Tony compensating for Gloria. He's doing the rounds. God, I love marrow. Mm. This is so loaded. She's sucking the life, the biology, out of her food. Much like the way she sucks the life out of people, at least certain people. And this is all coming from a woman with an estranged child. It's too rich. So she channels Livia and then calls her by name. Remember mom with a bone? Sounded like half price day at the liposuction center. In an episode where we learn that Gloria's dead a figure that resembled Livia in many ways, we're reminded of Livia by Janice, another Livia archetype disciple. It's a great incorporation of all these things into one scene, set at a table with food. Artie offers up some Armagnac. Janice shoots it down. She wants Nonino Piccolit instead. Tony says he'll have one too. Nonino is an Italian producer of grappa, a sort of Italian brandy. And piccolit is the type of grape it's derived from. It grows in abundance in northeast Italy. And it's 40 to 60% alcohol. 
So if Tony asked for the whole bottle, you can imagine what's about to go down. If consumed fully, lit would be an understatement. Last thing on Nonino Pickle Eat. The wholesale price in today's dollars is around $90 a bottle. Okay, so Tony asks about Bobby. And immediately Janice thinks this was his agenda for doing the dinner. But he's actually trying to do right by people. This ongoing penance for Gloria, how long will it last? At least up until the point where Janice says, You're a great brother. I mean, we can go at it pretty good, but you always seem to reach out when it counts. That one landed on the bone for him. You can see it in his face. He asks about suicide. Did you ever know anybody that uh, ever committed suicide? When I worked in suicide prevention as a crisis counselor, we were taught that the word committed was taboo because it makes it seem like suicide is a crime, which it isn't. And I'm not correcting the writers here because everybody says that, including me. But I thought it was an interesting concept. One of the missions of suicide prevention is erasing the stigma of mental health in general. And as we know, words matter. They have meaning. So it's worth mentioning. We learned Janice lost a friend, Murray Furlong. Great little backstory on Murray Furlong. Maybe he was in the CIA. Maybe he was gay. Maybe he was both. These little sidebar streams of consciousness are so great. Comfortable, confident writing. It's like a quarterback telling his receiver on third and eight, go long, I got you, back of the end zone. Janice continues. My last conversation with him was an argument, if you can call it that, about him always asking me to accept FedEx packages for him. You see Tony going there to his last conversation with Gloria, the one that involved him throwing her to the ground and choking her within an inch of her life. Note the music in the background. I only have eyes for you by the Flamingos. Interesting choice. My love is a kind of blind love. I can't see anyone but you. I can't see anyone but you. That was all Tony and Gloria, certainly for a minute at least. Next, Artie corners Tony in the bathroom to talk Jean Philippe. The way the frame is composed, it looks like Artie's head is resting on Tony's left shoulder. This conjured up the notion that Artie represented the good or straight and narrow side of Tony. We don't see a head resting on his right shoulder, but that composition is symbolic in that there was a split somewhere in Tony, even if just a crack of good versus evil. Artie still doesn't have the money. Now there's still a couple of days left, but he can't get a hold of Jean-Philippe. So Tony gives him a nice, tidy education on collection. Party, you gotta go over there. The guy's not returning your phone calls. I know. They miss a payment. They start acting like they're doing you a favor if they give you anything. And then you gotta spend all your time hounding them. You gotta get your arms around this thing. Now. You gotta get your arms around this thing. Tony, of course, with a great complimentary hand gesture to drive that point home. This momentarily fires up Artie. Next, we see him rehearsing his confrontation, channeling Robert De Niro in Taxi Driver. How many times have you rehearsed 
even the most benign of human encounters with a neighbor, a parent in your kid's class, a landlord, an early-stage business meeting. I know I have, to a fault. And I love that we get to see Artie in this element and channel that inner Travis Bickle all of us have somewhere inside us. Also love the visual of him working out or figuring out a light and easy line to diffuse or preemptively de-escalate a conversation that is rife with distrust, dishonesty, smoke and mirrors. I called you five times. Qu'est-ce que c'est? Uh, message machine broken. In Artie's boxing pose, he looks like the poster boy of preparation. And I'm reminded of the quote by Ben Franklin. By failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. I wonder if that's the way he said it. Back on Artie's digs for a second, the folding chair, the motel-like vibe, It could quite possibly have been a motel, but the whole thing was dank and depressing. The carpet, the tablecloth, the ashtray, even the lighting was a commentary of sorts. And this episode was shot and lit by the brilliant Alex Sakharov. I get the Bobby Flay empire is a work in progress, but college dorm rooms looked more hopeful than this. The final frames of Artie staring into the distance as we see him through his reflection in a mirror is interesting. I saw hints of Rodin, and Cezanne there. The former, the famous thinker sculpture, and the latter, an oil painting of a man smoking a pipe. Finally, the pane of the glass, the overlaid crisscrossing of it on his head, was symbolic of a couple of things. A man who was about to get cracked, and the splitting headache of having to answer to Tony Soprano, and all that comes with that. And of course, a man evaluating himself in the mirror and not loving the thing that's staring back. Cut now to Chris and a pal strung out. Chris now stands in front of a mirror, modifying what he sees, altering himself physically the way drugs do mentally. The song. This is Armand Van Helden's Kentucky Fried Flow. He's a DJ who has carved himself into electronic immortality by remixing giant pop artists over the past three decades. The guy is still racking up 1.8 million listens a month on Spotify. Impressive staying power. And not that he really needs it, but now forever immortalized in The Sopranos. Okay, back to Artie and his elevator scene. Elevator open scenes. Such a trope. For a reason... It always makes for a great frame, and you're able to cut from one emotion to another in an instant. People reacting in private moments, right before, wham! The reality of whatever it is they're going up or down to. In this instance, Artie's going up to see Jean-Philippe. He uses the Cascasse line, and I love how his eyes rover over Jean-Philippe, ever so slightly, to see how it landed. I prepared this for a long time. Do you notice? Jean-Philippe, this international man of mystery, his domicile is spare, but there's jazz music in the background and a thought piece painting above his desk. Doesn't look too good. Whoa, 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 whoa. What what does that that mean? Did he think it was going to be that easy? The challenge, we learn, is how to market Armagnac. The hip approach, like with Stoney, fails. Naturally, this got me wondering, how do new beverage brands get marketed? 
what are some of the best practices on bringing a new alcoholic beverage to market? The formula, which is obviously much easier said than done, calls for establishing a niche. For example, a unique history or production method. Next is knowing the interconnectedness of the business and the bureaucracy in what is a three-tier structure. The producers, who sell to distributors, who sell to retailers. And finally, marketing to a fragmented, ephemeral, and ad-averse population of young people. The best way to accomplish that, again, it's way easier said than done, is with authenticity. And at least in the early meetings with Jean-Philippe, nothing about him screams authentic. Except, well, for his accent, maybe. But if someone that far down the food chain is lacking in authenticity, there's a pretty good chance it's not going to be much better the higher up the food chain you travel. Now, Justin, or Dr. Justin, who was on many of the early episodes of the pod, works for a bourbon distiller now. And I hope that if he's listening, I'm somewhat on the right track here. Okay, the fight. Artie, Jean-Philippe, round one. Jean-Philippe's three left-hand body blows were slow-motion cinematic, very choreographed and soprano. The brutality was actually funny. I wished Artie had put up a better showing, but I get it. It speaks to his purity in terms of he's not a man of the street. He's a man of the apron. Jean-Philippe rips the earring out and says, du con. which means you C-word. But apparently the French aren't that rude, so it's one degree less than the C-word as we know it. Cut to Patrick Whalen giving AJ sex advice. The metaphors and the descriptors are prolific. The guy's writing a manual over here. We shall know forsooth, he says, which is Middle English and used in poetic contexts as a sentence intensifier, often ironic. They're driving to Devon's house. The exterior location is a place called the Pleasantdale Chateau in West Orange. It's a luxury wedding venue, one of the top nine in the entire United States. When they get there, the way she trots down the entry staircase with the scarf, the way it's draped, such a prelude of things to come, such a little detail. And there's also a symmetry to it, right? Because earlier in this episode, we saw Gloria with a scarf. Also, I love the pullback to reveal Patrick's car against the backdrop of the castle-like dwelling, or chateau, as we now know it to be. The fact that the auto court has a room with a red door is kind of all you need to know right there. Actually, the fact that there is an auto court is probably enough. Back to Artie. He's in a lazy boy. There's somber music. Wondered for a moment if it was music from the CD Elodie gave him. It's dimly lit. Pictures of his kids are prominently featured in the background. Hold on to that visual for something that will come in season six. He's consuming a cocktail of things to ease the edge of what he's predicting is going to happen with Tony. The fallout from the Jean-Philippe venture. Now from grim, dark, moody imagery, we're back on Tony with a new Gumar, an Icelandic one, threading back to a storyline from a few episodes ago. They're arguing about whether Iceland or Hawaii is a volcano. Since I'm recording this with my son in the office, let's put our geology hats on together and see what's what. Iceland, it turns out, is geologically young. It hasn't been around as long as other land masses on Earth. And its surface is the result of volcanic activity along the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. Though it has many active volcanoes, it isn't a volcano by itself. Likewise, the Hawaiian Islands aren't actual volcanoes, but were formed because of 
volcanic activity. And apparently it's ongoing and moving in a northwest direction. Yes, more islands are being formed as you listen to this podcast right now. Bill Nye, the science guy over here. Okay, Artie calls Tony, drunk, sounds suicidal. Oh no, Tony's thinking, not twice. This time, Tony has a chance to save it, so he doesn't hesitate for a minute. And he actually makes a sound choice in a moment of anxiety, which is unusual. Cut to Devin's house. Real Picassos. Props to AJ for knowing they were Picassos in the first place. I mean, seriously, he doesn't strike me as the type to sign up for AP Art History or even want to read 1,001 Paintings to See Before You Die, for that matter, which you know is one of the books on Meadows' bookshelf. But then he says they're all cocks, which on its surface sounds immature and ignorant. But a lot of Picasso's work, especially his sculptures, are suggestive of phallic imagery. In fact, one of his sculptures is named Cock. It's a rooster, but it also looks like that other thing, too. Next, we get more esoteric references. One, speaking to American consumerism, and the other, pop culture. Patrick is all about the accoutrement at Devin's house. See how I tied that word into an episode with French characters? He mentions a soda turntable. Those are audiophile turntables that started around $1,500, but go all the way up to $10,000 after accessories. Now, AJ is further awash with feelings of inadequacy and inferiority. Next, Patrick comes in with a mint-conditioned copy of Rubber Soul. That, of course, is an album by the Beatles. Number five on Rolling Stone's 500 best albums of all time. And now, AJ pretty much can't take it. In fact, he's emoting more than we've ever seen before. This episode, in many ways, has been a low-key AJ coming out party. Cut to Tony storming into Artie's room at the hospital. Tony's nice again way more than normal. Artie tells Tony to take the restaurant, but Tony says instead, just wipe my tab at the restaurant and we'll call it even. Problem is, that's only around 6000 and Artie owes in excess of 50000 But the cobwebs for Artie and possibly for us are now removed. Artie is convinced this was all some big play by Tony. Chess master over here. It's one of Artie's greatest moments. The cobwebs are now removed. What the fuck are you talking about? You saw this whole thing, didn't you? You knew exactly what was gonna happen. You can see 20 moves down the road. Please, I don't blame you. I envy you. It's like an instinct, like a hawk sees a little mouse moving around a cornfield from a mile up. You think it's my fault you're fucking lying in here? It's just that somebody mentions 50 grand to bankroll a French digestif and your mind goes through all the permutations at like internet speed and realizes, oh, worst case scenario, I eat for free. Now it's unclear whether Tony takes it as a compliment or a thinly veiled dig. There's a bit of gray area here. It's certainly enough that he brings it up in therapy in a few moments. Before leaving, Tony makes sure Artie fabricates a story about his injuries so people don't know that Tony loaned him money. He doesn't want the rap on him under any circumstances. Here, Tony is demonstrating his chess move thought process. It's on actual display, through dialogue, as opposed to reading tells on his face and body language. Cut to scenes from an Italian restaurant, Billy Joel, the moment I've been waiting for. Meet you anytime you want, and our 
our Italian restaurant. The choice to play the music over the dinner table conversation, but to cut the dinner conversation audio, is powerful. Quite frankly, it's what a Billy Joel song demands when it's used in a sync like this. The music in lyric is greater than any dialogue could proffer here. And I love the choice of respect and deference to the piano man, Mr. Long Island himself. The main takeaway from this sequence is that Carm is clearly uncomfortable seeing Furio with another woman. Kind of explains her motives a little bit, though I'm still not convinced as to why she did it. Tony's telling a story about his grandfather, who said to him, If you got a good wife, you're a millionaire. It's a true statement, and I'm proud and lucky to say I can attest to that. Then there's the deja vu element in his story. In an episode where a dream played prominently. Nice touch. He talks about steak pizzola. Sounds delicious. Another culinary reference. Roughly translated means meat, pizza style. The recipe hails from Naples, and I can't think of a better drink than soda to enjoy it with. Which is, of course, exactly what Carm poured for Tony that sealed the deal for this thing of theirs. Another thing I can attest to. Coming home to a fridge full of carbonated water, either canned or freshly made soda stream, it's truly one of life's simple pleasures that I never come home to a fridge without one, and I don't take it for granted for a second. Okay, Brian's toast. Calls Tony a new friend. But aren't they family? The statement is the final validation that Tony has done right by people in this episode. And he's heard enough validation now to call it a day. In the wake of Gloria's death, he's picking up the pieces and moving on. And in his next Melfi session, he's talking about his instinct for seeing things 20 moves ahead. Is that the kind of person I am? A hawk? It's an animal. He doesn't seem to like that. But what's wrong with being an animal? He loves animals. And of course, it's a subtle throwback to the pilot where Tony's fascination with winged creatures begin. Melfi keeps bringing it up time and time again. So this seems kind of fitting here. Tony made a donation, we learned, to the suicide hotline in Gloria's name. And that's it. Thank you. Thank you, Janice, for validating me. Thank you, Artie. Thank you, Carm, for acknowledging your behavior in the lead-up to signing the trust papers. Thank you, Cousin Brian, for promulgating my greatness. Game, set, match. Great quick cut to Furio, who comes to visit Jean-Philippe. The brevity of this scene was a perfect choice. At once, it's part palate cleanse, part comedy, and part weaving it all together. Back to AJ and friends. Mr. Pillsbury, we learn, is some kind of financial corporate whiz. Makes sense. The obligatory Pillsbury joke is worked into the story. Because you kind of have to, right? And finally... AJ, how come your dad doesn't have that Don Corleone money? I don't know. The Fade to Black over Take Me for a Little While by Dave Edmonds, which... Though it is framed around the scene with AJ and his confused but budding love, actually feels a little closer to Tony and Gloria. The lyrics suggest closing the book on that relationship. Tony has left her in the past. And the song and the following song lyric is nudging us to do the same. If you don't want me forever, take me for a little while so I could hold you, baby. Take me for a little while so I could make you want me. That's all I got. Thanks for listening as always. 
See you next time. 